0: G'day Inverse community, I'm Jared McKenna, and I can't tell you how excited I am about my co-host, Dr. Drew Hart's new book, Who Will Be a Witness? Igniting Activism for God's Justice, Love and Deliverance. To quote that towering 20th century figure of God's justice, love and deliverance, Abraham Joshua Heschel. There are no final proofs for the existence of God. There are only witnesses. For Heschel, much like the Hebrew prophets and that nonviolent messiah of justice named Jesus, faith is not merely to be believed, faith is to be embodied. Drew Hart is fast becoming a go-to voice for articulating a practical and prophetic embodied faith in our time. In these additional episodes, alongside our regular interviews, I think you'll hear why. Over the next coming weeks, we will interview friends and co-workers in what John Lewis called Good Trouble to discuss chapter by chapter Dr. Drew's new book. These conversations were recorded in community with friends from around the world as part of Inverse's ongoing work to create formation experiences that deepen our witness to God's justice, love and deliverance. So grace and peace to you. Enjoy this conversation on this chapter in Drew's new book.
1: I'm excited to introduce our guest for today. It is Don Golden. Um, he is an investment strategist for Just Capital Quote Quotient, <laughs> um, and a minister in Baltimore. He's which how I originally met him as a former executive director for the Red Letter Christians. Um, he helps activate faith communities and causes of social justice and economic inclusion, and he has co-authored the book. Jesus Wants to Save Christians, along with Rob Bell. And so, Don Golden, welcome to the Inverse Community.
2: Awesome, thank you for having me, Drew. Good to be with you and this crew.
1: Yeah, yeah, in fact, um, earlier, um, Jared was uh, just reminding of the connection that me and Jared first had, which was you and him traveling um, to Harrisburg and connecting, meeting me in my office. Yeah. Um, and, and that's my, my first inverse was as a guest um, being recorded in my own office. Right. And so that was a good time, but I've also connected with you um, through Red Letter Christians as right. well. And so I'm grateful for that connection. Um, but one of the things that I did not really know as much, uh, it was Jared actually who connected me to the fact that you um, have a connection with Walter Brueggemann um, so can you say a little bit about how Brueggemann has influenced your own economic analysis and reasoning? In what ways has he influenced yeah. your own way of thinking through some of these things?
2: Yeah, I mean, Walter Brueggemann is the most uh, beautiful soul living, I think, today. Um, <laughs> a man who, whose bright mind and lyrical writing uh, is steeped in the text, steeped in the Old Testament. Uh, our friend Brian McLaren put him on to put me on to him once I somehow got his email, I think he endorsed a book and I just wrote him an email and said hey and we made a connection many years ago and we, we he happened to live near my mother in Cincinnati and we became friends, we used to meet at an IHOP uh, every time I was in town uh, and then we did some projects together and I really started, he's the first scholar that I began to sort of frame my own You know, you have feelings inside you can't get out. And I began to express my own uh, feelings and and desires uh, for the kind of gospel I wanted to be a part of in his framing, his treatment of the Old Testament and its roots in justice and righteousness. Uh, And then filtering, not filtering, but seeing Jesus in the heart language in which he would have been raised. I think Walter Brueggemann's definition of justice is the most powerful. And I bequeath it to you if you haven't read it. And that is uh, finding out what belongs to whom and giving it back to them. (laughs) Um, So that's just one of the little nuggets that uh, that great soul has passed on. That's awesome.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Such a, yeah. um, Such a gift. I, I feel like I've only scratched the surface. I mean, obviously, you know, anybody that you can't go through sem- not a good seminary and not read things like the prophetic imagination and things like that. But, um, um, but, but then there's just countless, I mean, just the breadth of his wisdom and knowledge and his writings just go on and on and on. So um, yeah, just so much there. Um, I'm curious, what do you think? I mean, wh- why is it important for followers of Jesus to take seriously economic
2: inequality? Like, why, why is that important yeah. for followers of Jesus? I've been reflecting lately on the, the idea of the kingdom of God and maybe thinking about, you know, it's clearly what Jesus preached. There's so many places in which sort of, you know, his sum, the summary of what he did was he preached the kingdom and he uh, he demonstrated its coming. You know, it was all about the kingdom, the kingdom. But I imagine what that term, what that term means to us today, it's completely spiritualized. Even probably if you live in the United Kingdom, it's still, you know, the kingdom of God is now a technical religious term for those of us who like to traffic in it. What does it actually mean? And as I began to think about it, actually Jörg Rieger, who you interact with uh, in this chapter, uh, that made me think, probably the term that is the most practical uh, in terms of an application would be The political economy. You know, one of the things Brueggemann talks about is is the arrangements, you know, the social arrangements. Um, Yahweh is most concerned with how we choose to arrange ourselves and the political economy, you know, the money and the power and how it organizes our life, how it privileges some and excludes others. You know, whatever we're talking about, I can tell you, when each of us get off the call, we're connected to the political economy. Where are we getting our money? How are we paying our rent? Where do we fit in, um, in this economy? So my, from that perspective, as I look back on my evangelicalism, I think both I and, and many of the churches that I am associated with aren't even in the mission, you know, aren't even in the game they actually haven't even gotten in the game because if you're not if it is not good news to the poor it is not faithful to Jesus and it is not the thing that's animating you and hoping to save you so what is it right yeah so to me it's almost the other way around how how have we gotten to a place where where it isn't so obvious but but I think there are many many reasons again you touch on you know, a couple of them in the opening part of your your chapter. Uh, one thing you know recently I I heard is that um, you know for for the privileged the Bible is a structure of justification. Mm-hmm. You know, it's here. It here's why we have what we have. Here's how you can keep what you've got. Here's how you can live your life to further this type of life. It's it's really a a structure that justifies this place we've achieved an empire for everybody else it's a pathway of liberation you know it's uh the god who brought us out of egypt and that is a just a different dynamic and so i think if your gospel doesn't thrust you into the heart of the political economy then i don't think you're in the missional game i don't think you're in uh the calling that god has for god's people
1: Yeah. Even as you were saying, that reminds me, I don't know if a lot of people are familiar with his, uh, Michael Barham, but he has a book called missional economics, which is basically in some ways getting at what you're talking about. Um, I mean, the whole thing is basically, um, he's in some ways pushing back against how missional gets used and basically connecting it to economics, right. And our economic reasoning and arrangements, um, as right. well. And so, yeah, that just reminded me as you were saying that about his good work that he
2: has done on that. Um, and again, again well, I I so resonated with your chapter because you begin where you ought to begin, which is Jubilee, which is where Jesus began. You know, he began right. an economic declaration and he right. was, he was making that Brueggemann statement. Um, I'm here, I'm launching this new thing, and it's time to hit the reset button. This is the year of the Lord. Let's find out what belongs to whom and give it back to them. And and we still haven't done that.
0: Right. Right.
1: But we don't know our Bibles well enough to know that when Jesus says, you know, the year of the Lord's favor, that it's a euphemism for Jubilee, like not that's going over people's heads anyway, right? Exactly. Um, and so that there's a disconnect, nonetheless, though, I mean, I don't think that's really an excuse, right? Because uh, as I argue, you can't read the Gospel of Luke and not be confronted over and over and over again with just ongoing um, challenges around how we're going to respond to wealth and poverty in the world. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so... Yeah, it, it, we, we've got to do all kinds of gymnastics to get to ignoring and displacing the call to engage um, radically reorganizing our lives and our economic life, yeah. Yes. Um, so uh, you mentioned Jubilee ethics in um, um, the ways that I talk about it and the way that Jesus engages in that subject. I'm, I'm curious about like, so when you think about Um, Jesus's economic vision, like how do you see that clashing with, in particular, our moment right now and the kind of contemporary ways that people prioritize profits over people, like that kind of mentality? What are some of the challenges that you see kind of with the clash of what Jesus is inviting us to with maybe our own predispositions?
2: Yeah. Well, there's so much that could be said there, but I, I think a way to pinpoint it would be, it was 50 years ago, maybe two months ago, that uh, Milton Friedman uh, published his famous article that stated that the sole purpose of business is to maximize profit for shareholders. Right. Uh, and not uh, surprisingly, corporate Uh, Leaders and and basically that that has sacralized or sanctified greed in American society I mean the idea that it's it's even illegal in some situations To take profits and use them for social or environmental goods It's actually it's it's actually codified in our economic system our political economy Um, And all all that has has come out of that I mean it's just to, To be honest drew my three years with with red letter Christians deep into some wonderful activists like our brother Jared and Lisa Sharon Harper and Reverend William Barber and Shane Claiborne, uh, I became really, really overwhelmed with how evil our economic system is. I mean, just truly overwhelmed. And, you know, my calling, is not so much a prophet as a as an apostle in the sense of linking God's people and uh, you know that there might be equity among God's people and taking the gospel and and so I, where I am now is really trying to shift towards finding finding some of the the changes that are happening in the moment in the in the economy actually even more than the if you take the phrase political economy our politics wow I mean. Uh, uh there's a radio head song that says when i get uh overcharged you see sparks you know i mean we are just there's this lightning uh coming out of of the political side of that duality but the but the the econ- the economics there actually are some real bright spots uh number one friedman has been publicly repudiated by the business roundtable is it virtue signaling probably but you know, that's often where change begins. It's for some reason, the most powerful business leaders in the world find it convenient to say, Friedman was wrong, we can't live that way anymore. Uh, Another sign, the largest investment firm in the world today, BlackRock, Larry Fink's uh, BlackRock, $7 trillion investment fund. Uh, His annual letter he published this year is called A Fundamental Reshaping of Finance, in which he said, if you are not Measure if you're a corporation and you're not disclosing your environmental or social uh, footprint, we will divest. Now, those are just little, you know, li- little buds of enlightenment. But I tell you, as a as a Jesus follower, now getting into this arena, now that profit maximization has been dethroned as the primary spirit, people are truly looking for another motivator. And that is where people of faith, of all kinds of faith, but us, we have something to offer. You know, there is a deep reservoir of creative energy that that uh, God has given God's people to uh, to build and create and to innovate. And so all, all that to say, we could go on all night about the, the brokenness of the system. I happen to be steeping myself these days, partly out of the salvation of my own soul because it just got so dark and heavy for me. Um, but Finding, for example, there's about $500 billion right now of assets under management that are in the impact space. That is, businesses that have a triple bottom line, financial return, uh, social return, environmental return. And there's a growing body of people that are seeking to put more into the earth than they take from it. And, and I believe, you know, Christ followers who, who, who are doing this work have a lot to offer
1: I'd be curious, as you're saying that, like, I'm, I'm wondering, um, like, do you see, because, you know, my, my, my own biases, right, when I'm thinking about, like, wealthy people, and I'm thinking, and it comes out in my book, clearly, like, I think most white people are thinking about charity, but do you see trends where people are moving from the charity model oh, yeah. to really thinking about economic justice and economic yeah. redistribution?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, right now, we do have the most effective form of economic redistribution the world has ever seen. And it's the economic redistribution upward, (laughs) which is amazing how rich people only dislike redistribution when it's going the other way. Um, But absolutely. I, I, myself, you know, I spent 30 years in the human development arena, um, 15 of those with world relief and world vision, some of the best quality development work in the world. But I I see in it the inefficiencies. You know, I have been involved in raising literally millions of dollars during those 30 years, and the things that are the most positive for me are in the economic development space, uh, microfinance. Uh, you know, being involved in in helping uh, fund startup microfinance institutions in Rwanda, Burundi, East Congo, Cambodia. Uh, right now, in Burundi, the third poorest economy in the world the bank that we helped start 12 years ago uh, there's 17,000 clients that are part of that bank now. And they're, you know, they're, there's empowerment there, but yeah, I think there's a lot of, there's weariness in charity. And, and for me, I'm tired of it because charity is about you. You know, I feel so bad for you and it's about me. Look how good I am. Look what I've managed to achieve. But um Justice is a different thing. Going back to Walter Brueggemann's definition, and you know James Baldwin's idea that the only thing that white people have that black people need is power, and and a a, a business, you know, being able to create a business um, has power, and uh, and does create power and creates new access and new strength within the political economy. So yeah, I see some major trend, trends away from a pure charity model, uh, and a lot more emphasis on um, sort of conscientious capitalism. Yes, there's lots of virtue signaling, there's lots of greenwashing, um, but there, you know, the B Corp movement, for example, some of the most just, radical justice people I know are in the the B Corp movement, trying to start these benefit corporations, which have an extremely high set of standards uh, to be permitted to have that B on your milk carton or whatever it is that you're selling. Yeah.
1: So let's take it local, right? Um, I'm curious, like, so imagine a uh, white congregation came to you, and you know, obviously in, in the chapter, I mean, I'm pushing things like re- redistribution of wealth and reparations, but what if a white congregation came to you and wanted consulting on like, how can we discern or enact reparations? What would you, like, what, what would you I'm curious how you might um, advise some basic starting points for white congregations thinking about reparations?
2: Well, when I picked myself up off the floor in shock,
1: in shock, right?
2: <laughs> We're all waiting for this day, but
1: uh, but if it ever does come,
2: yeah. I mean, honestly, that would be that would be incredible. Although I I am sure that there are some sort of progressive and and liberal congregations that are talking about uh, reparations. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I I mean. You actually, I <laughs> made me think of it today. Well, you said it at the end of your chapter, but there is no hope for Amer- America. right now is marching into an exile of irrelevance. It, it is, you know, in, in the book that Rob Bell and I write, Jesus wants to save Christians. We outline this pattern from Egypt to Sinai to Jerusalem, the place of power and privilege. God gives power and privilege, but for only one reason, to uphold justice and righteousness, uh, especially for the marginalized. And when you lose the plot and when you use your power and privilege to protect your power and privilege, and when you sanctify it, and when you make that the center of your worship, I mean, the prophets, they're just railing against it. Isaiah starts out with, I hate your religion. Uh, you're, you're, And he sees into the future when that's all going to fade, and he calls them a, a a hut in a field of melons. You know, it'd be like looking at Washington DC and, and seeing the apocalypse and vines growing over the, the Washington Monument. But that is the inevitable uh, location when an empire uh, uses its power and privilege for its own benefit. Uh, so I believe that America is, well, China used more concrete in the last three years than the United States did in all of the 20th century. So there's another empire rising. Nebuchadnezzar is is mustering his forces. Uh, If we like to think of ourselves as Jerusalem, as evangelical Christians like to do, there's a Nebuchadnezzar growing out there, uh, preparing the seat of our exile. Uh, where we shall learn to speak Mandarin as we work day laboring in fields. You know that, that, is our, that is our future if we do not arrest uh, that march into exile um, by upholding justice and righteousness. And I, I have personally made a tactical decision that since the Red Revolution is not here on the horizon as much as Zizek and Jörg Rieger and others would like to see it, how can we use the capital that is available to, to, to see uh, a, more in, a more inclusive, a more just, and a more sustainable economy? If a, if a church came to me, I would invite uh, a process of repentance, first for Native American uh, attempted genocide, uh, for unceded land that we all live on, like I do here in Baltimore and wherever you are, you're, you're living on unceded land, land that was taken, stolen, and then an empire was built with stolen labor on top of it. How can you possibly hope to have a just and righteous and sustainable future when that's the ground you're standing on? So uh, a congregation that could help spark uh, and to, to normalize the idea of reparations, right now it's just considered for, for, you know, for majority culture, Americans, my family from Southern, Southern Ohio, I mean, they would run me out of town, they'd laugh at me for even, even bringing it up. So I would love to see a church take it seriously and see how we could gather red letter Christians and others around, you know, serious steps to normalizing it as something that is essential for our survival. Yeah,
1: the only place I've been, um, where it, I've seen a church space, take it very seriously. I was invited to give a talk in Maryland. The, um, Maryland Episcopal diocese is actually exploring reparations and because of their own complicity in slavery and stuff. And so I was a part of a, yeah, so they're doing research and doing their homework and their own complicity. Um, and so they're having a range of folks. And so that was kind of interesting to be a part of that, but, but it's rare to see, um, yeah. Churches, which is straight. I mean, I think most churches think of reparations as like a bad word, rather than like deeply Christian. You know, um, which shows something has gone again terribly wrong, terribly amiss um, in our theological imagination.
2: Um, maybe just even, last. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say we can't even agree on healthcare. Yeah, right, <laughs> no, right. Can, right. That, that's that's yeah. But please.
1: Yeah, no, I'm just going to last thought as we go out. I'm curious. I mean, I talk about Zacchaeus at the end of the story, at the end of the chapter, and I'm curious about, you know, as I... Emphasize, you know, him, you know, the reparations redistribution. I'm curious how how were you introduced to Zacchaeus? <laughs> um, was it was it this kind of diluted version, or did you get like, you know, the the revolutionary story of Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus
2: was the wee little man and the wee little man with tea, and
1: that's all. <laughs> that was it. Yeah.
2: And I later realized, you know, it's one of those many places where you you wish evangelicals took the Bible literally. I don't know. You pointed out as well. You take the seven times homosexual is used and you take it so literally, even though it's next to split hooves and shellfish and woven cloth, uh, and yet love your enemy, um, you know, jubilee. How about, you know, they're, they're, yeah. So discovering that fruit of repentance and the beauty of that, actually, it does also give me a kind of vision for wealthy people, you know, and I've known Right. That really good, wealthy activists. And, and uh, you know, we need more of them. We need more militant millionaires that, that know how to create wealth and know how to share, know how to live simply. I want, I want Shane Claiborne to become a millionaire. I mean, he, he gives houses away and he lives on $30,000 a year. And if he had that, you know, I mean, it would just flow as it, as it does. And it's that kind of, you know, Zacchaeus and what he shows is what repentance looks like. Uh, that is, it's so beautiful. It's so inviting. And again, I'm trying to stay you know, optimistic in this new world as I see uh, some, some winds of change blowing towards what maybe could be a revolutionary type of capitalism that is more just inclusive and sustainable.
1: Well, thank you, Don. appreciate you um, spending some time with us. Um, always My good pleasure. to see your face and to be in dialogue with you. Awesome.
2: Come on down to Baltimore and preach with us sometime at uh, Douglas Memorial Community Church. We'd love to have you.
1: Yeah, I would love that. I would love that. Absolutely. All right. right. Take care. Yep. Peace.
0: If you want to be part of this growing global community, you can find more details on our Inverse Patreon page. We are seeking to practice a jubilee economics to make these experiences accessible to everyone, wherever you're found be it in remote communities in the kimberley or a township in cape town or downtown berlin or on the south side of chicago or the suburbs of sydney we want to make this accessible for you so let's work to do that together